This evening is taken from the book of Genesis and chapter 3. We'll be reading the first 13 verses and this reading can be found on page 5 of the church Bibles. So Genesis chapter 3 and we'll begin reading at verse 1 and finish at verse 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the spirit serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Thank you very much, Simon, and uh, uh, good to be with you this evening as we continue our trawl. I'm going to go that way. Um, As we continue our trawl through uh, these early chapters of of Genesis. Uh, There's a a famous... um, Kind of moment in the past when um, one of the one of the national newspapers um, was, was running a little series on um, uh, what's the um, what's, what's the world's greatest problem, and people were throwing in their um, uh, their answers and their suggestions. Um, don't know what you'd go for, sort of economic uh, inequality, um, racism, um, educational deprivation. Uh, all sorts of things you could pick out, couldn't you? And, and people were, were plumbing in uh, their suggestions. Um, and so the story goes. Uh, one man uh, wrote, uh, in response to this question, what's the world's greatest problem? Uh, Dear sir, I am yours faithfully, G.K. Chesterton. Now, now whether the story is true or not, uh, it's still a pretty profound answer, isn't it? world's greatest problem? I am. The world's greatest difficulty, us. 
Now, in many ways, that, that's quite an offensive idea, isn't it? Um, and if you are somebody exploring the Christian faith, um, then uh, maybe that sort of pushes you away. Uh, how could Christianity just be so negative about people? Well, in many ways, for, for, for the last three weeks, we've been looking at chapters 1 and 2 and being really positive about people. A picture there of the great dignity given to man and woman as God establishes them in his image. It's a glorious picture. Uh, but, of course, it's not the whole story. Uh, and we need this next chapter. We need to understand this next chapter thoroughly and carefully if we're ever going to be able to get a handle on the Christian faith. If, if we don't grasp what is being described in chapter 3, in all of its depth, uh, then we will never truly grasp the Christian faith. Um, but before we jump into the, the detail of the passage, uh, let me uh, make three preliminary comments. Uh, first of all, would you see that this is not a morality tale? Um, Genesis chapter 3 is not about an apple, getting a bite taken out of it. Uh, there's no apple mentioned. It's not about the discovery of sex, uh, as if that's what went wrong in Genesis chapter 3. It's not a sort of Aesop's fable about how the snake lost its legs, in case you're ever wondering if that's what it's about. Now, there's, no, there's no fable, there's no myth here. This relates to, to real events, uh, some strange elements for sure, but it's a historical reality uh, that explains our origins. Uh, second, uh, would you see that it's neither simplistic nor incomprehensible? Um, it's the brilliance, actually, of this chapter that the youngest child who could read could read this and make some sense of it, couldn't they? You know, the story is not that complicated. That you get the idea of what's going on. But actually, we'll spend about 20 minutes, or no, no, I'll spend about 20 minutes talking about it. Uh, and you'll very graciously, well, I hope you'll very graciously spend 20 minutes listening to me. And at the end of that time, we really will have just scratched the surface. There's so much tucked into this chapter uh, for us uh, to dive into. And third, notice that there's, there's lots that this chapter doesn't tell us. Um, the chapter makes sense of us. It makes sense of some critical issues in the Christian faith. But there's lots that we don't know. And I suppose the most obvious one is who or what and how come this serpent? See, we've just done two chapters, haven't we, where we've discovered that God, has, God is the creator, God has brought everything into being. We read it in the, our very first verse that, that the serpent was the most crafty of all the creatures that God had made. Uh, and we've heard also that God sees all that he's made and it's good. So how come this serpent seems to be the precipitant, the, the, the trigger for everything going wrong? The chapter doesn't tell us. Because the chapter's purpose is not to explain to us how the serpent got to be the way that he was. No, the, the purpose of the chapter is to tell us how we got to be the way that we are. And if we refuse to hear the latter because we're distracted by the former, then we'll miss the point. 
So, so with those little introductory things, let, let me just take you through three headings. Uh, I want to look first at the lie concealed as a half-truth. Now, verse 1. Now, the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Uh, One writer describes this opening question um, as a sneer. Did God really say that? Not so much questioning the fact that the words had been spoken, but raising issues about the attitude behind it. I can't believe it. He said that. Are you kidding? How ridiculous. What an extraordinary thing for God to say. Because what the serpent's sort of sliding in is some huge misgivings about the very character of God. He frames God as a spoil sport, a killjoy, a God who is determined to stop them from having the best. God really said that you couldn't have that. can't believe it. Now, you, you might at one level think that Eve responds reasonably well. Uh, verse 2, see how she goes. The woman said to the snake, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. But if you've been following through chapters 1 and 2 with us, um, or if you're familiar with them, then you'll know that she's intensified the command. God didn't say anything about touching the fruit. Um, and she, she adds this bit in. Is there a hint here that Eve is beginning to be drawn in? Beginning to fall for the lie that God is holding back from them? That he is a bit of a spoiled sport? That he, that he ruins stuff? That he's being unreasonable? What will at once the serpent is back at her again? Verse 4. You will not certainly die. The snake said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. First of all, it's a flat-out denial, isn't it? You catch that. God had told them that if they eat from this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they will certainly die. And the serpent simply flat-out denies that. But the implication is that God is just bluffing. Because he wants to keep you under. He wants to stop you from getting the best. So he's just bluffing about this death business. Now, it's all just a ruse to stop you from having the very best thing. The fact is that if you take this fruit, no, 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 God knows that your eyes will be opened. Be brilliant. And God knows that you will be like him. That's what he's trying to stop happening. It's ever, ever struck you that the, the really dangerous lies are the ones that are kind of believable. None of us get taken in by kind of ridiculous lies. Uh, if, if you're running with sort of the, the phishing emails that arrive, uh, you know that they're getting better and better, aren't they? Yeah, and when the old ones came that had sort of you know, every other word misspelt, um, yeah, you know, it wasn't hard to spot them. 
But the ones that are just beginning to get a little bit cleverer, no, 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 those are the ones that suck us in. And, and you find yourself just on the edge of clicking before you, the penny drops. Well, these lies, these are subtle ones. These are clever lies. Because up to a point, what the serpent says is true. Do you see that? See, their eyes were opened. Uh, it's, it's there in uh, verse 7. Uh, where we're told that the eyes of them are opened and they realize that they're naked. So the serpent was kind of right. Even the suggestion that they will become like God, that's true too. Uh, See, later on in the chapter, if you flick over the page, God confirms that that's exactly what's happened. Verse 22, the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. The deceit was persuading Adam and Eve that these two things were good things, that it was a good thing for their eyes to be opened, that it was a good thing to become like God. That was the deceit. And the subtle deceit goes on. Because you and I hear those kind of words today, don't we? You're not aware of that? If you're trying to live out your Christian life, you're not aware that the battle comes in the whispers in your ear, wherever they come from, that suggest to you that God's a spoil sport, that suggest to you that God is holding out on you, that suggests that, do you know, you'd just, just be much better if you could throw off the shackles. I don't know what you're thinking of. Saving sex for marriage. Why would you do that? You're just missing out. It's a good thing, sex. Don't let God spoil your fun. Is that our world's message to us? What do you mean you won't bend the truth in order to get ahead? Everybody does that. Look, in this line of work, if you're not prepared to be a little bit flexible with the truth, you have no chance with your career. Just, just flex a little. Isn't that the way that the world speaks that same subtle lie? So first, the lie concealed as a half-truth. And the second, the rebellion, and kind of masquerading, hiding, as a glorious liberation. Because the serpent has made it sound as if this is the way to get free. This is the way to really live. But instead, it is the most awful rebellion. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. It is kind of trivial, isn't it? Did it strike you? It's just such a a sort of tiny thing, isn't it? Just taking some fruit and eating it. You know, how come that's such a big deal? 
How come that that, that tiny action causes the unraveling of the human race? It, it kind of doesn't make sense, does it? Well, well, of course, because this wasn't just about taking a bit of fruit. Now, this was about what one writer has called the, the de-godding of God. Uh, I remember hearing uh, Australian uh, Bible teacher John Chapman telling the story of being invited uh, for a private tour um, of the Houses of Parliament. I don't know how it had happened. Uh, he was over here speaking, and I guess somebody must have known some MP, and uh, they'd said that he could uh, have a tour around, uh, uh, around the Parliament buildings. Anyway, according to John Chapman, there came a point where they arrived in the Lord's Chamber, which, if you know, is, is the grandest of all of the chambers uh, in the Houses of Parliament. Um, and up at one end of it is uh, the Royal Throne, uh, which is where the Queen sits um, on, uh, on the day when she delivers the Queen's speech. Uh, and all of, the, uh, all of the members of all the Houses of, uh, of Parliament are, are gathered there together. Uh, it's very grand. I've got a picture of it, just to, to persuade you how grand it is. Oh, I think I've got a picture of it. Yeah, there, there it is. Very grand. Up some steps uh, and, uh, and this fantastic throne, uh, blazing gold. Anyway, apparently John Chapman said to his host, um, and I don't know if I should do the Australian accent. I probably shouldn't. Um, so, so John Chapman said to his host, um, you know, would it be all right if I, if I, I tell you what, uh, maybe I'll just get up there and I'll, I'll have a little sit in the, in the throne and you could take a picture of me and go down a storm back home. And he said he turned and looked at his host and the colour had just drained out of his host's face. And he said, no, I'm kidding. I wouldn't do that. Oh, he knew what an offence it would be. Go and plonk yourself in the Queen's throne. Just for a little selfie. Have we begun to understand the depth of the offence that is involved in what we're looking at here. The de-godding of God. The presumption that involves us sitting in the throne, taking God's place, claiming that we can do what he can do. Do we begin to see just how awful sin as the Christian faith understands it, really is. Let me try another way of trying to guess at it. Because um, you, you might wonder, might you, why doesn't God warn them off? You know, w w wouldn't that work? Suppose God had said, um, uh, listen, Adam and Eve, Pay attention, because this fruit business, okay, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you just need to pay attention here, because if you take the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it will be really bad news. Okay, just one bite, and you will usher in unimaginable horror. Instead of this paradise, it'll be a world filled with cancer and earthquakes and tsunamis. A world filled with exploitation, inequality, and abuse, murder, rape, and genocide. So choose. 
You're going to take a bite? Or all of that? Uh, do you know? No. Do you know? I think I'll just leave it on the tree. That's okay. I don't need that fruit. Is that, that's all the business. I mean, obviously they would do that, wouldn't they? So why didn't God do it? Why didn't God give them that information? Because he couldn't. You, you see, if he'd given them that information, if they'd made their choice not to eat the fruit on the basis of all the consequences, on the basis of some sort of cost-benefit analysis, on the basis that it wouldn't have been very good for them, do you see that it would have all been about them and not about God? They wouldn't have been obeying God for God. No, 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 they would have been saying, well, now you put it like that, I've weighed it up, and I've thought it through in my mind, and my decision is that I won't take the fruit. And placing yourself in the position of that judgment call is precisely what it is to take the fruit. To say, I'm the one who can make these decisions. I'm the one who knows what's best and what isn't. The only reason they don't take the fruit is because in their judgment, it's not a good thing to do. Then they have already taken the higher place, already set themselves above God. Understand that this fruit's not a magic fruit like in some Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale, you know, and sort of kind of magically it makes things go wrong. No, no, it's a symbolic fruit. It's a representative fruit. It represents this assault on the throne of God. It represents this taking God's place, usurping him, putting ourselves in charge instead of him. Now, if you want to puzzle over this further, then over coffee, you might exchange with another person. What do you think Eve should have said? What should her response have been in verse 2? It's an interesting puzzle to ask yourselves. Um, and uh, uh, we haven't got time uh, to think about it now. But you see that as long as we go on thinking that sin is just doing some wrong things, we'll never grasp the Christian faith. We have to move beyond that to understand that sin is this assault on the, on the throne of God. It's placing ourselves where we don't belong to be. It is awful to treat God like that. It does explain why the judgment for sin is so severe, why the consequences of sin are so awful, and why the salvation for sin has to be so radical. That's why I say you'll never understand the Christian faith if you don't understand the awfulness and the scale of sin. Third heading. The consequences. Experienced as a new and terrible normal. What do I mean by that? Well, I suppose what I'm trying to say by that is This is all we know. We live in a world that is experiencing the consequences of our sin. You and I have never lived in Genesis 2 land. We can't even imagine, actually, what it would be like to live in Genesis 2 land. Now, this is our normal. For us, the pull towards wickedness, the pull towards independence, the pull towards putting me first and God to one side, is normal. That's what we do. 
and the consequences of it that, that bubble up in all of our relationships, uh, in the things that Simon was praying about earlier, our broken, damaged world, well, they're everywhere. Um, l- let me read this final section. Um, and as I read it, you, you might want to look out for three forms of hiding that now take place. Uh, so pick it up in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? You spot them? The the, the first hiding that is the consequence of sin is a hiding from one another. The eyes of them are opened and they realize that they're naked and they suddenly need to cover up. Because they were naked before, it just didn't bother them. And I take it that we're not just talking about a physical nakedness. I I take it that we're talking about a complete transparency, an openness, so that I am fully known and fully loved. It's what all of us desperately want. But none of us can ever anymore have. Because we don't dare to be naked. And I don't mean physically. And we don't dare to, to reveal ourselves to another person, not fully. We hide from one another. It's the first consequence uh, of sin. It's a horrible contrast, isn't it? The end of chapter 2, when they are both naked and they feel no shame, uh, to verse 7. Uh, when the eyes of them are opened and they realize that they're naked and they cannot bear it. You feel the tragedy of that? How badly you want to be close to other people? And now you are never really quite able to make it. Uh, And then uh, secondly, uh, there is um, a nakedness Uh, There is a hiding, sorry, um, that is not from one another, but a hiding from God. Just the sound of him walking in the garden. He hasn't even spoken. You can imagine they might find his voice frightening now that they have rebelled against him, but actually it's just the noise of him walking in the garden is enough to send them scurrying for cover, hiding behind the trees. And God calls, where are you? You don't imagine he needed to know, do you? I mean, he knew where they were. Now, he asked the question to invite them out, to invite them to acknowledge what they've done, to to, to give them the chance, as it were, to, to step out and admit the terrible thing that they've done. But they don't do that because they're hiding from him, concealing from him. 
still trying to pull the wool over his eyes. See, how do you read verse 11? You see, you could read verse 11, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree. It's her fault. That's what happened. Or you could read it like this. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree. It's your fault. You did it. You put her here. The one thing it's not is his fault. And that's the third kind of hiding. We hide from ourselves. We hide from the honesty of what we're like. We pretend we're not nearly as bad as we are. We find other people to blame. Circumstances caused me to do that. I wouldn't have been like that if it hadn't been for so-and-so saying that or, or, or that happening in my life. We hide from the truth about ourselves. Here's our world. A world where we're forced to hide from one another. Our relationship's damaged. We'll see more of that next week. A world where we hide from God, our relationship with him ruined. And a world where we hide even from ourselves, unable to acknowledge what we're really like. It is our new and terrible normal. And it's driven by our de-godding of God. Uh, In a moment, uh, we're going to confess that the roots of this attitude are lodged in our hearts. At least we are if you're willing to speak the words of confession. It'll be up on the screen in a moment. We're going to acknowledge that even though even though we might try to dislodge that attitude from our hearts, we won't do it. But the, the really more terrible truth is that we don't really want to. You and I don't want to put God back where he belongs. That's what sin means. Sin means that I want to stay in charge of my world, running my life. I don't want God interfering and taking his proper place. That's what it means to acknowledge that we're sinful people. And unless we're willing to acknowledge that, and even as I say those words, you're thinking, no, I'm quite keen on the idea of God being in charge. Now, any keenness you have to put God in charge is God's grace at work in you. It's not you that's done it. It's his grace that has created that in you. And and until we acknowledge just how bad our sin is, we'll never understand just how good his salvation is. If we think, actually, God's just given me a chance on a little bit of self-improvement project, which I've always really wanted to do. I'm, I'm basically a pretty good bloke. And, you know, given the opportunity, good will out, and I will reveal myself to be quite magnificent. If, if at some level that's really what we believe about ourselves, then salvation will never seem like a big thing to us. God's just giving me a little leg up. But I was on my way anyway. Now, you have to understand the depth and the severity of sin to understand how extraordinary it is that God has come to us in salvation. It was a terrible moment when the serpent, in effect, said to Eve, take 
eat. You'll see. It'll be good. But wonderfully, that's not the last time that we hear that invitation. In a moment, we're going to say, take, eat, again. And that take and eat speaks a much, much better word than that first word that was spoken to Eve. Because many years after the events in this garden, in Eden, there was another garden and another tree and another decision that needed to be taken. And only this decision in the Garden of Gethsemane wasn't made by someone arrogantly seizing the place that belonged to God. No, this decision in the Garden of Gethsemane was being made by one who had given up that place and humbly accepted the place that belongs to you and I instead. In the first garden, temptation came and Adam succumbed. Adam effectively said, let my will be done. In the second garden, temptation came and Jesus obeyed. Let thy will be done. He takes our place that we might have his. That's what this Lord's Supper is all about. But it'll never mean much to us if we haven't seen the gravity of our sin. If we haven't seen how awful it is that I usurp God, I take his place, I live as if he didn't exist, and I say, it's my life and I'll rule it my way. Let's be quiet for a moment, uh, and then I'll lead us into the words of confession.